0: Hi everybody! Welcome to the WAO Most Awesome Founder Podcast, a show about entrepreneurs, innovators, advisors, and educators, and the stories that make them who they are today. I'm your host Rie Fans, and today we welcome to the podcast Christopher Cederskog. Christopher is a WAO alumnus, co-founder, and CEO of SunHero, a company that wants to help homeowners getting affordable access to high quality residential rooftop solar solutions. Christopher, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi Dries, thanks for having me.
0: Now in this podcast, we always start in the same way. So we always want to give the floor to our guests to do some personal storytelling out of their background. So where they're coming from, what kind of trajectory they have run through. So I would like to give you the floor to briefly tell something about yourself.
1: Sure. Um, so I think, let me start with kind of my, my, my personal background in the sense that I grew up bilingually, I'm half German, half Swedish. So my last name is okay. Swedish. That's why it's, uh, it's also a bit unusual. And I grew up in Germany, France, the U S Latin America and Sweden. So I kind of, I traveled the world quite a bit as a, as a child and I ended up, um, staying in Germany for, for business school, uh, as, as you mentioned, and then, um, spent the majority of my career working in some form of international setting. Yeah. I spent a few years at, at Deutsche Bank in the, in, in the early part of my career, but I was actually mostly working in, in Eastern Europe at that time. Uh, and then started a couple of companies in all parts of the world, in Brazil, in Australia, uh, ended okay. up spending about four and a half years helping Airbnb internationalize as one of the first employees in Europe. And then built a consulting company that was also very focused on international expansion and in the end now founded Sun Hero two and a half years ago in Spain. I am also based in Spain, um, and we are, uh, exclusively catering to the Spanish market and kind of have a very strong focus on, on Southern Europe. So international is kind of in, in my DNA. Um, and I think that's also a bit kind of the, actually one of the reasons why I started, why I started Sun Hero and why I started it in Spain. In 2019, I became a father. I had a, I had my first daughter. And I really had this this realization that, and it was, I think in hindsight, way too late and probably for the wrong reasons, but I really had this realization that at some point, she's going to ask me, what are you doing with your life, dad? And why are you always traveling? And why are you working so much? And I felt that I need a, a better answer than, yeah, I'm trying to you know, build a SaaS software for managing your <laughs> <laughs> Nothing okay. against HR software. Uh, we, we use one as well. Like the, We need them, but I just felt it wasn't the right thing for me to do. So I wanted to do something in climate. And I ended up, and this is where kind of the story ties together with my personal background. I have a family house in Sweden, a summer home, which is off-grid. For years, okay. we had a very, very tiny solar panel. Basically, you could use it to charge your phone. And we used gas for cooling, for heating for cooking it's a a summer house we really only use it in summer but it used a lot of gas and very little electricity and for anything bigger you needed to pull out the generator and turn it on and diesel and Mm. it felt really really dirty and in 2020 um i decided to build a larger solar system there so i am not an engineer I'm, i'm a business person as i mentioned so i went on youtube i went on the internet i looked at blogs i read stuff i watched things I ended up buying components. I drove to some um, some place outside of Berlin to pick up a couple of panels, some batteries, <laughs> and, then, and then and then inverter. And then I climbed onto the roof and I pulled the cables. And I, I did it with my father-in-law, who's also not an engineer. And we were sitting there together, okay. and it was really like, you know, does this thing go here? No, I think it goes over here. Let's try this. Let's try that. And in the end, we electrified the home. We put in a lot of LED light bulbs. We put in a new fridge. We're still cooking with gas because the the system is very, very small in in kind of the terms that I think of now, but it really made a big difference to the house and it made a massive difference and it had a massive impact on me. And I really sat on that roof and had the realization that there is something here. Helping this kind of electrification transition is Mm. incredibly valuable. I think that there's a business that we can build here um, and I think we can build it in a market that really needs it, and for me, it was also yeah. clear that the markets in Southern Europe, they are the ones who need it. And then I got together with uh, Stefan, my co-founder, who was also a VU alumnus. Uh, we've known each other from my previous company, and I got together okay. with him. And I said, "Hey, Stefan, let's let's go and build this thing in Southern Europe." And he immediately said yes. And now two and a half years later, here we are.
0: Yeah. And and so can you briefly explain a bit more why exactly uh, Spain as the kind of core customer market? Of course, there is a lot of sun, so that sounds like a reasonable idea to use solar. Uh, panel technology but were there other reasons why exactly spain because of course there are more countries where they have a lot of sun
1: yeah and and there were there were other reasons so the the sun paradoxically is not a great measure for where solar works so if you look at globally where solar works the sun plays kind of a bit of a role but really solar follows income i think at the end of the day so you you see the highest penetration of solar you see in California, you see in the Netherlands, in Northern Europe, okay. uh, now in Scandinavia, um, in those markets. And then you see lower penetration in lower income countries and in lower, parts, uh, lower income parts of, of the world. And for me, I felt that Spain and Southern Europe were really interesting markets because they are massive markets. Spain you know, has a huge population, huge energy yeah. demand, increasing energy demand. There are also markets that are very affected by climate change because Mm. you know everyone here has has ac you know a few years ago the ac would run from the middle of july to the end of august now the ac runs from may to the end of september and people start you know they had a small ac to cool the living room now they're upgrading their their ac to you know build just more capabilities to cool all that consumes a lot of energy and at the same time, solar was very underpenetrated. You have very, very low penetration. So we have, you know, two to three percent of of residential homes have have solar power. In Germany, that number is probably in the like fifteen to twenty percent range, uh, thanks to a couple of startups uh, and and the market growing very rapidly in the last couple of years. It's really taken off, and so you just have a very different market and a market that needs the energy more and needs the solution more. And that's that was the primary reason, that was the market. The second reason really is around talent. Um, Spain, especially in Barcelona, Madrid has amazing talent. We have an incredibly diverse team here from people who have come from all over the world, all parts of Latin America, all parts of Spain, but also yeah. a lot of other countries. And it's just a hub in Southern Europe for for technical talent, for entrepreneurial talent. And then I think finally it's it's you know it's not the worst place in the world to live, so that certainly helps, and that's why we started started here in Spain, and that's why we will always kind of see Spain as our our main base, but we do have plans to to look at other markets, especially in other markets in in southern Europe
0: okay yeah and can you maybe tell a bit more about your actual business model because of course you're not the only company offering uh, people to install solar panels on their houses. So how do you kind of try to differentiate from potential competitors? What is kind of the, the unique advantage that you want to promote as a company? Yeah,
1: I think our our unique positioning is really a focus on the customer. And that sounds really mm-hmm. simple. It it sounds, sounds something that like everyone would do, but in that everybody
0: should do, you would think <laughs> in
1: this specific market, it's actually really unusual. Because okay. most companies in the space, there are two predominant types of players in the space the first is the utilities who Hmm. really don't care about the customer just (laughs) go on google and check it out or just look at your own personal experience with utilities like they just structurally don't care about customers that much and then the other player are small local installers just some guy Hmm. you know a couple of kilometers away who wants to care because i think that's really their nature but it's difficult to do because it's you know a guy he's in his truck by himself, the phone rings, he doesn't hear you well, yeah, I'll call you back. I think maybe next week I'm coming to your neck of the woods. I'll give you a call, but he you know he writes it down in a notebook, gets your number wrong it's It's difficult to operationalize yeah. and i I have a lot of empathy for that, but it's very difficult to care for your customer in this in this business, and so that yeah. is really our unique position because fundamentally, I think what especially in a market that has low penetration you have to understand how difficult of a decision this is for the customer. The customer is Mm. changing the way electricity works because right now, if you turn on the light, the light turns on. If you plug in your phone, it charges. So what am I changing? Mm. But I'm changing something, but it's costing me quite a lot of money, but it's also on my roof. So I see it, but I can't really touch it. And Mm. most of my neighbors haven't made this thing. And I can't call my parents who have also not made this decision. You know, it's not like when I'm buying my first car or my first house, I call my uncle, I call my friends from college who've made the step. I have, you know, media that's been hitting me with this information for decades. I don't have any of that in this space. I'm, I'm really alone and I need someone to kind of help me on this path. And I think that's really been our positioning. And from that, you get to a couple of like operational things that we do. One of them being is we are really trying to be the face to the customer along the whole process so end to end mm. we don't pass the customer on to then someone else who does something that it's always our customers always a sun hero customer and the second thing is we place an incredibly high premium on installing at high quality that may be a little bit the the Germaness in us. Uh, in some <laughs> yes, <laughs> but we really also believe, you know, this is a this is a long term investment. We really believe in in word of mouth and network effects, and we see that in our data. That I think is a little yeah. bit the the unsung hero of this business model is that it has incredibly strong network effects, and we've been really able mm. to use those. But they are a, very dependent on your ability to install with high quality and customers can tell if you care if you install high quality or not and this is all part of ultimately being focused on the customer using software using processes to streamline things to make them faster to make them more transparent to the customer um that's essentially our our differentiation
0: uh, and i think what what when listening to you what i think what what you mentioned is very interesting is so in in this kind of um activities it's not only about selling the product but you actually have to first educate potential customers like you mentioned you, you cannot reach out to your parents because they don't have solar panels so that there is this kind of educational part and and i see that actually in, in quite some different industries i think also about the health industry mm-hmm. where i see also in our VO ecosystem startups trying to disrupt the health industry but also in that case they need a kind of educational part Could you maybe tell a bit more about how you as uh, sun hero are trying to actually educate your customers what kind of activities do you do to do that?
1: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Customers need to be educated. Customers have a lot of questions around the technology, around the process, around Mm -hmm. what decisions they need to make, what's the best solution for them. And we, I think fundamentally use a few different uh, approaches to that, obviously and this is partially then at the end of the day marketing, we do a lot of content, a lot of video, a lot of written content where we try to explain things, where okay. we have experts on our team and we really have deep, deep technical expertise on our team that give an overview of, okay, what do you sh- what should you think about when it comes to selecting the right inverters? Does it matter what type of panels you install or is that just optics and price? What about batteries? What about mm. chargers? What about heat pumps? It's not just about solar panels it's about full electrification and we have deep subject matter experts that we that we kind of uh, put on video and have them write things and, and share that with the community at the same time our experts that help the customer in the one-to-one interactions are very well educated they get a lot of training on the technical side and they get a lot of training frankly mm-hmm. on the explanation side because this again i come back to like carrying putting the customer in the middle you can always find an electrical engineer who can explain to you in 45 minutes the difference between a monophasic and a triphasic <laughs> installation and how the amperes work uh, and where the watts go and by minute one and a half you're done you you, you not assume <laughs> that information you don't want to consume that information and i think especially with with electricity that's actually very hard because If i come to you and i say you know i'm i I don't know i'm neil degrasse tyson and i explain to you how the solar system works how a galaxy far far away works or string theory works you think oh that's actually interesting i've never heard of that but if i tell you Mm. how the electricity works that comes out of your wall you think yeah but i learned that when i was in high school but i i mean i wasn't paying attention but i was there (laughs) so it feels a little bit like hey drees let me explain to you how to how to button your shirt and it's like yeah you Mm. do. i i can do that by myself so you need to be very mm. careful. You need to have a high degree of empathy and you really need to be able to listen to the customer's question. You have to get them to tell you their questions and then you have to respond to that question. You can't go in with a technical monologue of 25 minutes because yeah. you just lose the customer. And that's really really difficult. And that's be so that's some, something that we invest a lot of energy in into into doing and and I think it, that's really also paying off very well.
0: Okay, great. Another thing that I noticed, of course, we always follow up the, the kind of the investment activities and fundraising activities of startups in our ecosystem. And so I noticed that you in 2023 that you raised some debt uh, funding. And actually, I've seen that other solar panel companies that that they also heavily do this? Can can you explain a bit more why uh, you and and similar companies why they need this kind of debt financing? Why is this so important for this kind of activity?
1: Yeah, at the end of the day, there is a decent component of this business that is working capital. Um, you have mm. to buy materials uh, that you have some type of logistics around. Um, you can manage that, you know, how much you want to have in your own warehouse. And that's a separate and, and very long technical discussion, but fundamentally you do have to buy some hardware and put that, uh, and have those commitments. And then you also have external partners that you work with. And there's a lot of kind of working capital that flows through the, through the machine, so to speak. And in order to finance that growth and finance some of that, um, debt financing is just frankly a better instrument than, than equity and, and it's yeah. tailor made for that. In our specific case we decided to work with bbva which is one of the largest spanish banks they have a very strong network here they are very well regarded in spain frankly they are much better known than most of our equity investors and so that kind of gives us they have a large customer base and 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 obviously are kind of a household name in spain so that gives us kind of a little bit of an additional juice there it's not the main reason why we did it the main reason really is the is managing the working capital um and we have mm. some all other smaller debt facilities specifically for for working capital which we you know haven't announced because they're ultimately not strategically relevant they're more kind of a tactical tool and so that's yeah. why it's quite common in in these asset heavy operationally heavy businesses to have a decent amount of of debt
0: yeah okay clear um i actually want to maybe briefly broaden up the discussion a bit, because as you mentioned, um, you have a lot of experience in international expansion. As you mentioned, you were an international expansion manager at Airbnb. Uh, I also saw on LinkedIn that you have given kind of some consulting advice to other startups, how to internationally expand. And of course, uh, with, with Sunhero, you have decided to kind of expand in Spain. Uh, And I think this is a topic when I look at our students, but also the, the people in our network or the startups in our network, this is often something that they struggle with, like, okay, if we want to go outside of Germany, if we want to internationally expand, where should we start? What kind of challenges should we expect? So based on your experience, what do you see as the kind of most important challenges for German startups when they want to internationally expand?
1: That's a, that's a very interesting question. I think specifically, you know, Sun Hero, that, those learnings really don't apply that much to that because at the end of the day, we're not a German startup that expanded internationally. Yeah. We are a Spanish company with a German founder or with yeah. German founders, actually, which has its own set of challenges, but it's really a different challenge from expanding your German business. But let me talk a little bit about my experience, talk, you know, looking at, let's say, a German business that maybe wants to expand to another market. At the end of the day, there are very few business models that really enable international expansion in a very, very easy and good way. That's, I think, first of all, like 80, 90% of businesses that work well in Germany may work well as a business model in another market, but will not work well as a business in another market. So I think, first of all, Mm. that's a realization that you just have to accept as a founder.
0: And can you explain a bit more why? Why is it so difficult to kind of expand, in your opinion, German business models to other settings?
1: And it's not specific to German business models. I think this is universally true for any any business. Uh, It's just very difficult to expand internationally unless you have kind of an unfair advantage. So to take Mm. kind of two very extreme examples, if you take Volkswagen, uh, old German car manufacturer, they have obviously an unfair advantage because manufacturing cars is much more difficult than distributed cars and so it makes sense that people in let's say uh, poland buy german cars and not that many polish cars because it's so difficult to manufacture them and having that manufacturing and having that supply chain and all of that 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 you need to that to have that It just makes sense. So you have, at the end of the day, very few car manufacturers that have very international presence. That's kind of a very easy example. The other opposite example is I would say Airbnb, which is not a Mm. technological advantage, but it's a distribution advantage. People who are traveling, they don't just want to travel within Germany. You don't, people don't want to just travel from Cologne to Berlin. They want to travel to New York. They want to travel to Paris and vice versa. So you have just at the end of the day, international network effects that give you an unfair competitive advantage on the distribution side. But i think you Mm. do need to have that unfair that unfair advantage or it's not unfair because it's hard earned in most cases and something you've worked on for in many cases decades but that you can use that advantage that makes you stronger than a local player now most businesses at the end of the day they don't have that if you're Mm. reselling mattresses on amazon yeah, you can resell mattresses on Amazon in the Netherlands and in France, but someone else can also be just reselling mattresses on Amazon in the Netherlands and France. I I don't really see why you as a German company have that unfair advantage. And you have a couple of disadvantages. And one of them is, as a founding team, you don't speak the language in most cases, Mm -hmm. at least not to the degree that you have like full cultural understanding and word plays and you really understand the nuance of what people are saying and what they're saying between the lines etc. and then you always have that situation and i think i've seen this so many times is you know let's say you're a german company you have a large business in germany and you're deciding on marketing investments and you say okay you know we have hundred thousand euros and it's a big company already like right? we have big budgets we have hundred thousand no. euros this quarter we can put them into germany or we can put them into italy which is like we just started that like three months ago well the conversion no. rates and the roi is just going to be significantly better in germany than it is in italy So you always get in a situation of saying like, yeah, but why would we invest 100000 in Italy? And the Italian country manager is jumping up and down and throwing his noodles around (laughs) and saying, yeah, but I need the money, otherwise my business isn't working. But the German marketing manager is saying, yeah, but I can deliver this ROI. And you have to say as a a founding team, as a board, as a CEO, you have to say, I'm willing to make this investment even though it's objectively a worse investment because I believe that Italy is the next, the future for us. And this, I think, maybe is one of the things that's diff- particularly difficult for German companies, because Germany is such a large market. You know, I'm I'm mm. Swedish, and I see that for the Swedish companies, they all expand internationally because their home market is. Expand. Yeah. Because the argument to say, "Yeah, we're always going to be number one in Sweden. We don't need to go to Germany. We don't need to go to the U.S." Everyone will say that that doesn't make any sense. Of course, you need to go to Germany. Yeah. Of course, you need the U.S. But. From a german point of view do you have to be in austria no offense no. but you don't have to be in austria it's not that you will not survive if you were just in germany so that makes just the hurdle a lot higher to do that and then yeah. you know and then at the end of the day building a business is is incredibly tough you have to hire the right people you have to build the right culture if you're trying to export a german culture to another market that's also very difficult but at the same time these teams have to work together so If they're culturally completely misaligned, that's also a problem. So you, but then you're already in like the, I would say what I would call like the tactical space, you get into like really difficult uh, decisions that you have to make along the way. And that just sums up to being that international expansion is really, really hard. It's really exceptionally hard. And it starts with a conviction that you have to do it. I think that to me is Mm. like. When I, I remember it, I joined Airbnb kind of to do international expansion, but it was just at the cusp of where the decision was kind of made, but it wasn't totally socialized. So I kind of, I got a little bit of kind of the glimpse behind the curtain of like what the feeling was around international. And there was back then a feeling that if we don't do it, we will die. I, yeah. That may be wrong, but that was genuinely the feeling within the company. It was, if we do not do this, we will die. It's not that if we don't do it, then we can't raise our series D or, you know, then blah, blah, blah. It's if we do not do this, we will just die. We will not survive. And that is pressure. And that just makes, you know, take certain decisions, take certain risks, um, make certain concessions that you have to make in order to then to actually go after it. And uh, luckily it, it worked out because, Fundamentally, the business actually had this competitive advantage
0: yeah, so so what I hear is that you're saying, "Look, international expansion, especially for German companies which have a relatively big kind of home market, will only work when there is really a sense of urgency to do it because otherwise the incentives to kind of make this step and have lower traction and whatever." Uh, they will just not be there. Not that. Yeah,
1: I a, and I uh, think someone will say, "Yeah, but look at HelloFresh," and I think that's mm. a, that's a VAU business. Um, um, and I think for them, I don't want to speak for 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 Dominic's kind of thinking when when they made the step, but I think they understood that they actually had this competitive advantage. I think they also okay. felt that there was probably more pressure to do it from investors, from competitors, from the competitive standpoint. they also and frankly maybe got a little bit lucky because the best case that you can have is that the pressure feels bigger than it ends up being that's just the best Mm. possible case because then it forces you to do it but then once you start doing it it actually turns out to be a little bit easier than you thought it would be and i think that's kind of that that's helped them but obviously they've just done that exceptionally well and they've executed exceptionally well but i think in terms of execution, HelloFresh is, you know, a ninety-nine point nine nine percentile execution company. So you need that as well if you if you want to do it. I think you need a competitive advantage and you need pressure. Those are the the two things that, that you need to do it.
0: Yeah, and as as a kind of preparation for this talk, I also looked a bit at kind of the the, the academic literature on this topic on international expansion, and then I found quite some articles that, that's talk about uh, which kind of metrics should you take into account when deciding in which countries you should expand at uh, the, the country should be big enough. Uh, like you said, uh, you should have a certain, uh, your, your unfair advantage should fit with the country. But I was actually a bit surprised that, that these articles rarely talk about the topic of culture. Mm. Um, and at least being a person myself who has lived in Belgium, in the Netherlands and in Germany, you notice these cultural differences and you notice how they might affect your success or your ability to contribute. Um, so, so what is your opinion about kind of the importance of a kind of cultural fit to uh, successfully expand international? Do you think it's something that is really important or do you think that it's overrated based on your experience?
1: I think it's more difficult to manage than you would often think but it okay. is something that in the end you can manage. So let me, yeah. let me give you an example actually now about Sanhero, because as a German founder in yeah. Spain, the cultural <laughs> thing is, I think, quite relevant.
0: But because you are living now in Spain. I, live in Spain. I yeah. It, not
1: yeah, I live in Spain. We have essentially the whole team in Spain. We are essentially a Spanish and also majority wise Spanish operating company, even though my Spanish is. Fine, but uh, not certainly not at a native level. And I think, to be very frank, when I started the company, I was probably a bit naive because I thought, Mm. you know, we're young, uh, internationally (laughs) well educated. This is the EU. We're not talking about starting a company (laughs) in Japan or, or I don't know, like on the other end of the world where you've never been. Like I've been to Spain many times. I'm I'm fluent in Spanish. I speak the language. I You know if this is this is going to be easy yeah no it's not it's it really Mm. it's certainly not easy because it's a different working culture and when you really think about not having you know if you hire if your vp of marketing ends up you know coming from london but he was originally italian and now he's in berlin and he's that's different than having a team of 100 people that you know 95 of them are are spanish or latin americans so you do run into cultural cultural differences there, and in some cases they're much harder to deal with than I originally thought that they would be. But at the end of the day, can you maybe can you maybe give a specific example? So what, I think what there's what a, kind a of a, so there is a couple of stereotypes about the Spaniards. Uh, one of them <laughs> being that they're on not on time, and that stereotype <laughs> is definitely not true. So that's definitely uh, false. Um, everyone on our team is always on time. If anyone's late, it's usually me. And they work incredibly hard and very long hours and very dedicated. There is a little bit of a culture of hierarchical following in Spain. Mm. People tend to listen very closely to what the boss says and Mm. they don't question quite as much decisions that are being passed down. And I think that can work very well in, in certain companies. And if you're, kind of operating at high speeds and you need people to just kind of like follow the leader that can work really well, if you're really sure that you know what you're doing, I think that can work right mm. really well. If you're a startup and you're still trying to figure things out, I would say like, there's only kind of two scenarios where my idea is always the best idea. And both mm-hmm. of them are a really big problem. The first one would be if I'm so much smarter than everyone else and judging from mm. experience that's just not true because i'm just not that smart and everybody else is pretty smart so that just cannot be correct and the second option mm. is if i know structurally something that you guys don't know if i'm always at an information advantage and that could be true but that would be really really dangerous because then we would really mm. have a big problem and i don't think that that's structurally true so i don't fundamentally believe that my ideas are better than other people's ideas and luckily we've been able to build a culture where the best ideas come to the surface and you really want to have a culture where the best ideas can come from anywhere. And, you know, even the most junior, most recent employee can contribute and can feel like their ideas are being heard and that they're, you know, if they have the the right ideas, if they have the right data, then they can, they can contribute with those ideas regardless of who they're talking to. But that has been, a very difficult journey for us. That's been a, a reasonably no. long journey. And that's still, still something that we sometimes get wrong with new hires, uh, that, that come in a little bit too much with the expectation of like, I'll come here and then someone will tell me what to do and then I'll do that and I'll do it well. No. But that's not how we've been operating in the past. And that's kind of not the culture that I'm from. I'm not saying that's better, but that's just not the culture that I'm from.
0: Yeah. So then actually in your recruitment, you have to, to take that into account that you're looking for people that, that are maybe in contrast to the average Spanish employee that might be a bit more willing to take self initiative and, and not follow this kind of hierarchical decision making culture.
1: Yeah. And, and I think at the end of the day, this, this always comes down to like, it's a fine line. And I remember mm. having this discussion. I had this discussion for years at Airbnb when we were hiring in Europe. Because very often we had kind of a U.S. recruiting team, U.S. cultural interviews. And I always said, guys, you guys are trying to hire Americans, but they're German or French or Spanish, and you're just going to have a hard time doing that. If you take a view of you want a German or you want an American, but, but they need to be operating in Italy because there just aren't that many American Italians that are actually Italians. You want someone who's actually Italian but at the same time obviously then you you have the flip side if you if you let each country completely do their own thing then the italian team, mm. the german team they can't talk to each other because they're culturally mm. misaligned and so for us i'm not trying to hire germans that are Spaniards um because that also just it's not enough <laughs> yeah. of them they're not that good it's not the right thing to do so it's you have to kind of find find the balance there but you do have to be very conscious of you know what are the values that people bring? One of the first exercises we did when we founded Sun Hero is we we wrote down what we call our founding principles. And we really mm-hmm. look at those in the interview process. And we really try to see which founding principles do people exhibit. And that's, that's incredibly, incredibly important. And we've had people leave the company because they didn't fit from a cultural point of view, even though they were very good at what they did. I think that's
0: something. Yeah, and and what, are, what are actually then your core founding principles? Um, so we
1: have, we have six, um, they are, you know, I'm not going to name all six, but I think there's kind no. of my two favorites. I would say one of them is keep on rowing and the other one okay. is focus on what matters. And I think keep on rowing is like, that is the, really the founding principle that that we live by, that everybody on this team lives by and every survey that we do internally. This is really kind of our founding philosophy is that there's so many complexities in this business. There's so many things that you have to consider. And there's so much about like, yeah, but what about this? What about that? Let's wait, let's get some more information. Let's talk to some more people. No, let's just keep moving. Like there's no way that no. we stop moving. So we always have to keep moving forward. And that's really um, a trait that we that we really live by. And I think that everybody loves doing as well. It's so much fun when it works. It's so much fun when when everybody's rowing, then you really see that the boat is moving and you just have the sense of like yeah i'm doing everything i can everybody else is doing everything they they can that's really very very positive and uplifting and then focus on what matters i think ultimately that's a very simple principle it's it's not rocket science you have to figure out like is this going to move the needle can we can we actually make a difference here or is this kind of like ticking a box that you know someone says somewhere we need to tick now no let's keep let's focus on the things that really matter and then kind of putting the, the final one that I think I would mention is care for customers and the planet, because that's at the end of the day, the, the reason that we exist, and that's something I talked about earlier, just our focus on why did we start Sunhero is to have a positive environmental impact, and why who are we doing this for? We're doing it for our clients. And yeah. those are-
0: so when I listen to your your principles, it seems that that you want to be a very, what I would call, action-oriented company. So maybe it's less about discussing a lot and thinking a lot. It's just like, okay, we need to take action. We need to move forward and let's focus on the things that really matter. Is that the right kind of interpretation of your principle? I think, I
1: think that's, I think that's very right. And I think it, it stems quite strongly also from, from our business model and Mm. in that the, one of the hard things about starting a consumer company that, that has this operational element is that you end up not having hundreds of millions of customers you have Mm. you know thousands of customers if i if i look at our biggest competitors in germany you know they're somewhere between the tens of thousands to maybe hundred thousand customers Mm. in the context of a consumer product that's not a lot even that is Mm. not a lot and this is you know unicorns hundreds of millions of fundraising like thousands of employees you know tens of thousands of customers is not a lot so no. what that means is that this idea that i think many of us have grown up with which is saying like let's take analytical data driven decisions let's run ab tests let's do the <laughs> yeah. tables let's have big bi teams big data science yeah but no like that just doesn't work because you just don't have enough okay. data you don't want to, you don't want to wait 15 weeks for an ab test on some Especially if you're testing like some landing page that only applies to people who have blah, 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 and you put a couple of constraints on it, the numbers just get so small. So you have to Mm. get into a habit of saying, yeah, but we need to take a decision and we need to move forward. And I'm always reminded by a quote, which is one of my favorite business quotes, because I think it's so widely misunderstood, which is, if we have data, let's look at data. If we have opinions, we're going with mine. Which. (laughs) <laughs> I think, and I, it's, it really is one of my favorites, because it sounds like such an ego statement, but I yeah. actually don't think it is. I think it is. The point of the quote is to say, we have to take a decision. We, we can't just debate, we have to move forward, because otherwise, we become a debate society and not a business. Yeah. We have to yeah. take a decision. And then we need a framework to take that decision. And obviously, if we have data, let's do that. But if we don't have data, then we need some other framework. And I think that's Mm. kind of how I think about that philosophy. And that's something that, um, and I think my co-founder Stefan lives this even more than than I do, which is just to say like, yeah, uh, I built this thing. It's now live. We're doing it. It's done. Let's go. Next. And let's not get, you know, 15 people's opinion. Let's put it out there. Uh, Let's go with it because we believe that it's the right thing to do and then over time we'll adjust and we'll improve it and we'll make it better. And we have a very clear kind of direction that we're heading, but in the day-to-day, you just have to operate. The customer is calling, you have to make the installation, you have to pick up the goods, you have to make the orders. There's just so many things that just have to get done today that you don't have the luxury of saying, let's spend three weeks collecting data and talking to people and no. doing that. So I think you no, but, but, you, yeah. you saw it very correctly. We are very action oriented as a company.
0: Yeah, And of course that, that also fits with what your business actually is not. It's a very hands-on business. You go to customers, you install the solar panels on their roofs, you need to be able to solve technical issues if they emerge very quickly hands-on and that seems to be reflected also then in the philosophy of the company that you're a very kind of hands-on company in terms of how to d- make decision making so that that, that yeah. at least seems to fit nicely that.
1: i mean i i think you know you can never forget in this business that at the end of the day like you said someone has to drive with the van to the customer's house put the panels yeah. onto the roof and put the screw driver into the screw and that just has to happen if that doesn't happen then fundamentally we don't have a business so that is absolutely crucial and essential so we have very much a non-ivory tower uh, kind of way of of doing of doing things and thinking about the business and that's yeah. okay so much fun to do uh, you know at the end of the day because you see i think in this way like you see the fruits of your labor in just such a different in such a different way and you see yeah. all the installations all across spain popping up and you see customers referring us to other customers, you see what they're, what they're telling other people because they say like, yeah, these, these guys delivered, they, they cared and the quality is good. And, and now, you know, look at my app and look at how much energy I'm producing. And I'm, you know, I, I really fundamentally believe this thing that it's not just about moving your own consumption to clean energy that ultimately has a decent impact on the environment if we all did it. But I really believe that when you have solar panels and you've made this transition, you start thinking differently about energy. You look at the sky, mm. you look at the sun, you think about, does this switch need to be on? Can it be off? Because <laughs> no. you just change your mind. And I think that enables you to think differently about the companies that you interact with, the politicians that you interact with. And it's a slow and steady race, but you have to do it because I think it's imperative that, uh, that we make this transition. And luckily we see that the, the numbers are are picking up, and every year the uh, renewables are growing, and they keep growing faster than the experts think that they will, so that's the good news, but at the end of the day, we still have a long way to go. We still have two to three percent penetration in Spain, and we need to get that yeah. to, to okay. twenty five and fifty percent Yeah,
0: maybe uh to to maybe uh, go a bit to the the end of the podcast. Now, this is a podcast where a lot of students listen to, but also kind of early stage entrepreneurs. So I always want to get uh, them some inspiration from the experts that we have on the podcast. And in this case, as we explained before, uh, you of course have quite a lot of experience in being a kind of international entrepreneur Uh, as a German, you created Sunhero in Spain, but also in your prior functions, you, you have always worked in a kind of international context. And a lot of our students, they have the ambition to become an international entrepreneur. They don't necessarily want to start something in Germany. So based on your own experience, what would be kind of your recommendations to this kind of uh, early stage entrepreneurs that want to build an international uh, startup? Do you have specific suggestions for them?
1: I have two. The first is just do it. That's the... (laughs) I think there's no amount of research and any, anything that they can prepare you for the journey. I think it's, it's a lived experience. I, I think if there was a formula, then someone like you would have, would have written the book and we would have all read it. Um, and I just don't think it, that that formula hasn't been found yet. Let's put it that way. So I think just yeah. doing it is, is the key first step. But I I do think that there's a second incredibly important step. While we have two German founders, We have a Spanish management team. And if I look at our management team, most of the people have been with us for a long time, a couple of the people that are in that management team, they were employees number two and three and four, and they've just, they were there from the very first month and they've scaled incredibly. I trust them with maybe not my life, but I trust them with my company. The business would not work without some of those people of the first five people that we hired four of them are still with us three of them are in our management team they're incredibly valuable to have and they're all spaniards they're all local and we trust them very very much so that i think is key like hiring the right people in the beginning of course you Mm -hmm. always want to hire the right people of course as you scale you you get access to better talent but just like picking those few people in the beginning Again, I don't know if there's a formula for that. I haven't read it. That's intuition. That's certainly to a high degree, that's luck. But I think you have to really place this premium on the first people, especially if it's, that's always true for any business that you start. But I think it's especially true if you're starting a business in a different market. And I think with our mission, with what we wanted to achieve, that helped for sure. Um, but I still don't believe, I still don't understand why some of those people joined me. When, when we, <laughs> we, we found the company in 2021, I was sitting in my in-laws basement in Germany. <laughs> Stefan was sitting in his apartment in Berlin. It was COVID. We had put up a fake website because we didn't have the sun hero website yet. So we had a different company name. We put up job ads and we had these calls with people and we said, Hey you need to quit your high paying consultant job, take a big pay cut and join mm. two Germans on our mission to build a business in Spain. We don't have a, we don't have a legal entity. The name is going to be different, but you need to quit your job and join us immediately. And a couple of people said yes to that. After each of those yeses, Stefan and I talked to each other and said, okay, so what's wrong with this guy? Cause this is like, you <laughs> must have not caught something. There must be something wrong with this guy. Um, and uh, and so many people said yes to that. So, you know, to, to Luis and Manu and Pilar and Alex um, and, and Felix, I think those guys, like, absolutely made such a massive impact on, on this business and continue to have such a big impact on this business. Without them, we just would never be where we are today.
0: Yeah, and I think we even see that in academic research, that the initial human capital that you're able to kind of bring together is such a crucial kind of predictor of startup success. And at the same time, of course, that's exactly the periods you, where you might not really have the experience and skills to do effective hiring. Uh, but yeah, then you, uh, I think to some extent, you also have to be a bit lucky in that respect, I suppose. Uh, or of course, I think if you have experience before, like you had in other companies, that, that of course might be helpful in, in being able to identify this early talent, of course.
1: I, I'm sure that I hope that experience that experience helps because it's it's one of the few things that I they keep having more of, um. So I no. hope that, that I hope that it helps, and I hope I think at the end of the day you yeah you need to get the people around you that kind of believe in in your in your idea and your mission and and like the way that, that you work and you need to find the the right way to work together and see those people evolve, and if you can do that, then that's that's a those I think are the two big. The, the two things that you need to start with you, you need to get going and then you need to hire the right initial people. So unfortunately that's probably not like revolutionary insights because at the end of the day, that's probably at the end of the day, the the recommendation for almost any business. Um, but I, I, I've never been a believer. And I think also, you know, the way that I told the story about how I found it's unhero hero through this very personal experience. I've mm. never been the believer in the let's do a market research and evaluate, you know, 150 different businesses across 27 different metrics. Yeah. And then we do a pivot table and a waiting. And then at the end of the day, it tells us that we need to sell mattresses on, on Amazon. <laughs> I've never been a believer in that uh, that approach yeah. to building businesses. I, I mean, I think th- th- that can be incredibly successful. There are incredibly successful ways businesses that have built, been built that way. But I always believe that, like, my gut tells me, there is something here sometimes i can't articulate what it is yet but i believe Mm. that if there is something here and i believe in it then i can get other people to follow me on that journey as well and that's something that at least uh, so far has been has been going quite well and um and and it it just makes the day-to-day more more fun if you if you know that at the end of the day we're all here to care for our customers and care for the planet that's that's why we're here. That's what we're doing. And I think that just, that makes, that brings me so much joy. Yeah.
0: Perfect. Okay. As a final question, we always ask uh, the guests on our podcast, if they have specific suggestions for books or podcasts that they're listening to, books that they're reading. Is there something specific that you're listening to,
1: that you're reading that you would recommend to our audience? there is uh, there is a few so there's actually a book in my backpack which is not here so i've um, i'm going to butcher the the name but i'll send you the link later um <laughs> yes. it's um it's i think it's storyable um it's a it's a book about storytelling um okay. the author's name is matthew dick um so i got that right for sure i probably got the name wrong um the <laughs> podcast suggestion for me i think one of the best entrepreneurial podcasts at the moment is is lenny's podcast uh, from lenny Rajitsky an old Airbnb uh, colleague of mine. He's very focused on product management, um, but he's just reached um, a certain uh, scale that he really has great entrepreneurs on his podcast. Um, I think that's something that's definitely worth listening to. Um, And then I think Seth Godin is always worth a read um, when it comes to management and inspiration, and especially a little bit on the the marketing side. I think I get a lot of inspiration there as well. I think those would be my three recommendations.
0: Okay. And the the podcast I have not heard about, so I will definitely check it out because it sounds uh, very interesting. Perfect. Okay, Christopher, thanks a lot for being here. Thanks a lot for sharing your experiences, both about SunHero, but also more in general about your experiences with international expansion. I think that's very valuable for our audience. And of course, I also hope that our listeners have enjoyed this episode. please. If you liked the episode, don't forget to give us some stars in your favorite podcast player. That's helpful. And we hope that you will join us again in the next episode. Thank you.
1: please. thanks Bye. so much for your time. Bye. Bye-bye.